0: Most companies and organizations have logos. You'll recognize these. We go. I'm sure you identify those immediately as Target and Nike. Here's a really, really popular logo. You see it all over the place. Calvary Chapel, Stone Mountain. Perhaps you'll recognize these two logos. There you go. Each year, the University of Georgia and the Georgia Institute of Technology make lots of money from licensing their logos. Trademarks are popular and profitable and most of all, protected. You know, even after you purchase a license to use the Georgia or the Georgia Tech logo, there are still restrictions that monitor its use. UGA forbids showing their beloved bulldog with a beer can in his paw. Did you know that? Georgia Tech bans the placing of the Tech emblem on a toilet seat. Who would want to do such a thing? Each school is proud of its logo. They expect it to be respected. Well, Christianity has two logos, baptism and communion. We call them ordinances. An ordinance is a practice that's been divinely decreed. Ordinances are activities that have been registered in heaven and that are licensed to every succeeding generation of Christian believers, and there are two. Over the years, man has tried to add to God's list of trademarks. Roman Catholics add five, confirmation and penance, extreme unction, orders, and matrimony. Some fundamentalist groups have added foot washing. For most theologians, there's a rule. There's a threefold test that gets applied to a practice to determine whether it was meant to be normative for the entire church. First, was it initiated by Jesus? Second, was it practiced in the book of Acts? And third, was it taught in the New Testament letters. Apply this test to the aforementioned ordinances in only two past muster, baptism and communion. Baptism is a microcosm of Jesus' work upon the cross and his subsequent work in our hearts. Communion is the focal point of unity and intimacy, the unity and intimacy that the believer enjoys with his Lord and also with other members of the body of Christ. Baptism speaks of our forgiveness. Communion speaks of our fellowship. Just as a logo is a capsular expression of an organization's objective and core values, likewise, baptism and communion represent the heart of Christianity. They're our logos, and that's why they need to be enthusiastically practiced and carefully protected. I'm reminded of the young pastor who was very enthusiastic about his first baptism the night before the pastor and his wife had eaten dinner at a friend's house. All the pastor could talk about was the excitement he had over the baptism the next day. Well, as they got into the car to leave, the pastor's friend overheard his wife tell her husband, okay, you can go by the church and practice baptizing me one more time, but remember, when you do your first funeral, you're not going to practice on me. Here was a pastor who was a little bit too enthusiastic. I baptized a man once who came to watch his wife and daughter get baptized. When he left for church that morning, he had no intention whatsoever of getting baptized. He didn't bring a towel. He didn't even bring a swimsuit. Yet he was so moved by the Holy Spirit that he took off his shoes, took his wallet out of his pocket, and just jumped into the pool. He gave his life to Jesus in the pool. He and I were standing there together. I dunked him on the spot. Baptism and communion need to be enthusiastically practiced. I don't always get a kiss after baptizing someone, but I did that day. And baptism should always be enthusiastic. And as with any logo, baptism and communion should be carefully protected. Over time, symbols get easily confused and they lose their original meaning. You know, when Pepsi-Cola first took its product to Thailand, they used the same slogan that they had used in America, Come alive, you're in the Pepsi generation. But when that gets translated into the Thai language, it comes out a bit different. Pepsi brings your ancestors back from the dead. That was not the message they wanted to convey. Years ago, when Chevrolet went to Mexico to sell its compact car, the Nova, the Nova, The marketing geniuses didn't realize that the Spanish word nova can also mean not going anywhere, which makes for a really lousy name for a car. My point is, is that a logo or a symbol is ineffective if there's confusion about its meaning. That's why there needs to be clarity and definition when we talk about the logos of our faith, baptism, and communion. Christianity's trademarks have been cherished for two millenniums. They are truly golden oldies, yet they can become mere formalities if we don't maintain their importance. We need to always be cultivating a fresh appreciation. That's why today I want to take a look at the logos. We'll look first at baptism. And here's our threefold outline it is a lamp, it is a stamp. And it can be a ramp. And then we'll focus on three aspects of communion. It's Hebrew, it's the glue that binds us together, and it's an avenue for blessing. Well, first, let's plunge into baptism, it's a lamp that shines a light on the mysteries of salvation. You know, the physical work of salvation was performed by Jesus 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross in a dim corner of the world called Judea, whereas the spiritual work of salvation is equally obscure. It occurs deep in our spirit, in the most profound part of us. In both cases, there are no cameras. There were no cameras, obviously, in 32 AD, and there are none in the human spirit. You know, today it's amazing surgeons can send micro cameras down through your blood vessels to take pictures of the inside of your body, to film the body's inner workings. Yet no cameras exist that can photograph the Holy Spirit as he transforms a human spirit. And yet baptism shines a spotlight on our salvation. What was done in the distant past and what is done today in the deepest parts. First and foremost, baptism illustrates Jesus' work upon the cross. Jesus plunged beneath the waters of death and then victoriously surfaced three days later. You know, whenever I baptize someone, rarely do I hold them under for three days. But maybe it would be good symbolism. Maybe at least I should count three seconds. 1,001, 1,002, 1,000. That could get along, long, that could be very long if you're underwater. Yet the imagery would be clear. God knows the power of a picture, and baptism portrays Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. Baptism also shines a light on the inner workings of the Spirit of Jesus in our hearts. Colossians 2 verse 12 puts it this way, We are buried with Christ in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. In a spiritual sense, a believer shares in the work of Jesus on the cross. Baptism symbolizes the death of our old sinful nature and the birth of a new man in Christ Jesus. There's an ancient tradition that says that the early church required the person being baptized to wear old, ragged, dirty clothes into the baptismal waters and then, after he or she emerged from the waters, they changed clothes and they put on new, fresh garments. It was a picture that in Christ, old things pass away, all things become new. Once a pastor was performing an outdoor baptism, he was explaining its significance. When at that exact moment, the sun hit his hand and it cast a shadow, he pointed to the shadow. And he reminded the crowd that the shadow was not his hand. It was just an image. And likewise, water baptism is just an illustration. Water baptism is the shadow of the spiritual baptism that occurs when you repent of your sin and when you trust in Jesus. The old you is buried and a new you is reborn. As the old saying goes, baptism is an outward demonstration of an inward transformation. Reminds me of this fellow. He was drunk as a skunk. He stumbled across a church conducting an outdoor baptism. The old country preacher, he grabbed him, pulled him into the creek and baptized him. When the boy came up out of the water, the preacher shouted, boy, have you found Jesus? The drunk fellow didn't know what to say. So the pastor dunked him again. When he brought him up out of the water, the second time he asked, Have you found Jesus yet? Still he was speechless. So the preacher baptized him a third time, this time holding him down a long while. Again, the preacher shouted, Boy, have you found Jesus yet? This time the drunk fellow answered, No, I haven't. But are you sure this is where he fell in? The country preacher mistakenly thought that baptism would save this man. He was wrong. After baptizing the fellow three times, all he ended up with was a soggy sinner. Understand, salvation occurs apart from baptism. No one has ever been saved because of baptism. And many have been saved without baptism. Remember, the thief on the cross is a great example. He was obviously never baptized, and yet Jesus said to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. In Acts chapter 10, Luke makes a point of telling us that when Peter visited Cornelius, the Roman was converted and filled with the Holy Spirit and made a member of the church before he was ever baptized with water. Baptism has never been an essential for salvation. If it were a requirement, then my salvation would be dependent on a religious act something that I did, that would nullify God's grace. Grace is love that's on the house. It's never dependent upon me. It flows from God's heart. It's a free gift. Our salvation is God's free gift. Rather than allocated on merit, salvation is received by faith alone. Baptism, though, shines a light on our salvation. It's a lamp. But baptism is also a stamp. It's a mark of identification with Jesus. Jesus knew no sin, yet he was baptized to identify with us, to show us that he was one of us, that he was on our team. And one of the reasons we're baptized is to identify with Jesus. We become Christians when we become one with Christ and part of his family. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, you should read them later. The global flood of Noah's day is used as a type of baptism. When Noah's family exited the ark, in essence, they had been baptized into a new world. And likewise, our baptism acts as a new beginning for us. It's a landmark. It's a new starting point. You see, baptism is a statement to our friends and family that our allegiances have changed. That we've left behind this old evil world and we've made a stake in the world to come. You know, it's interesting. Noah moved from an old world to a new world through water. Israel moved from slavery to freedom by passing through the Red Sea. The second generation of Israelis went from wandering to victory by passing again through the waters, this time the Jordan River. And we, the church, begin a new life through baptism. When you're baptized, in a sense, you become a card-carrying member of the body of Christ. You know, it's interesting. In the early church, neither friend or foe took your commitment to Jesus seriously until you had first been baptized. Think about it. How would anyone consider you a follower of Jesus if you had never taken the first step? The Didache, which means the teaching, a book written by the early church fathers, forbid a person from taking communion until they had first been baptized. Apparently, baptism was the believer's membership card. Again, baptism is never an essential to salvation, but that doesn't mean that it's optional. In fact, if you survey through the book of Acts, every convert was baptized. No exceptions. New Testament scholar FF F. Bruce contends the idea of an unbaptized Christian is simply not entertained in the New Testament. It's clear that baptism was the first step of a believer's obedience. I like to think of baptism as a wedding ring. You know when I go out and catch baseballs, sometimes the older kids throw so hard that the ball it hits my ring underneath the glove. It hurts. And so I've been known before catching baseballs to take my wedding ring off. But when I take it off, it doesn't mean that I'm not married. Whether it's on or off, I am still a lawfully wedded husband. Nevertheless, it's important to me that I wear my ring. It's the stamp. It's the mark that I'm a married man. If I didn't have a legitimate excuse for not wearing my ring, my wife might think that I was ashamed of her or that I regretted my vows or that I was even making overtures toward other women. That's why my wedding ring is important. And this is how Jesus feels about baptism. When we take our vows and then drag our feet about being baptized, Jesus has reasons to question our commitment. Baptism is a lamp. It is then a stamp on our commitment, and it's also a ramp. It's a ramp that leads upwards to greater spiritual experience. Water baptism is a catalyst for spiritual growth. I like to think of it as spiritual STP, it's a high octane additive. After a Christian is baptized, Their spiritual life seems to function smoother and cleaner. You skip less, and you run smoother. I found that to get baptized, a person has to deal with their pride. First thing you have to deal with. And this alone encourages a person's growth and grace. It's good to deal with your pride. For a person who likes looking hip and being cool and coming across sophisticated, baptism is such a humiliating experience. Why let another person dip you under the water? It just sounds dippy, doesn't it? But that's why you need to get baptized. You need to humble yourself. You need to step over your pride. When you're baptized, you're prioritizing the spiritual, godly side of your life. Obey God and your Christian life will pick up the pace. You know, it's interesting in the book of Acts, a connection exists between water baptism and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When believers are baptized with water, it seems to unlock a window of faith through which God pours out a larger measure of the Holy Spirit's power. There's an interesting quote in the Erdman's History of Christianity. It reads, From the third century, the baptismal service also included the laying on of hands by the chief minister of the church. With a prayer that the candidate would receive the Holy Spirit. Though God's Spirit comes to live inside us at the time of our conversion, the supernatural power of the Spirit is often poured out upon us at our baptism. It ramps up the power. Now, people often ask me, Do you believe in baptism by immersion or sprinkling? And I respond by saying, If you want to be baptized the way the people in the book of Acts were baptized, then you need to be immersed. The Greek babto means to dip or to submerge. You remember in Acts chapter 8 when Philip baptized the Ethiopian, it required a body of water. We're told that they went down into the water. New Testament baptism was a divine dunk. And yet, having made the case for immersion, I'm not sure it's that big of a deal to God. You Remember, baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. And sprinkling is also a type of spiritual transformation. Hebrews 10 verse 22 tells us, Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In the Old Testament, the priest dedicated the furniture that was used in the temple, and he did so by sprinkling it with blood. And in Christ, we too are sprinkled with his cleansing power. Thus, why would not sprinkling also be an appropriate symbol for our conversion? There have been several occasions when, for health reasons, a person couldn't be immersed, and so I sprinkled them. I think Jesus just wants you to be baptized. Here's an excerpt from the Didache, again, that early church writing. It says, baptize as follows, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in running water. Now, why does that make a difference? I have no idea. But if you do not have running water, use whatever is available. But if you cannot do it in cold water, use warm. For some reason, cold water is preferable. Again, I don't know why. If you have neither, pour water on the head three times in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, if you're out in the desert, you can sprinkle. To sum up the Didache passage, in one word, it would be flexibility. If you're healthy and there's plenty of water available, why not go all out and opt for full immersion? But if you're confined to a wheelchair perhaps, Or for some other reason, you're prohibited from going under the water. Don't be condemned about it. God is cool if you just are sprinkled. The point is, when it comes to baptism, what's most important is not how you do it, but that you do it. One final word about baptism. The one area where the New Testament is inflexible is when it comes to infant baptism. Nowhere does the New Testament teach or even mention baptizing babies. The New Testament pattern is always repent, believe, and then be baptized. It's always in that order. Baptism is always supposed to follow repentance and faith, not precede it. Thus, how can a baby be biblically baptized if they're incapable of both repentance and faith? I believe infant baptism, I believe even baptizing young children too early can do more harm than good. As a parent, we don't want our children to grow up with a false sense of security. Some kids think that just because they've been baptized, they must be a Christian. I was baptized as a child before I ever truly surrendered my life to Jesus. That's why later on, after my conversion, I felt the need to be rebaptized as a true believer. If you have a need to be water baptized, we have one scheduled for the last Sunday in January. I hope you'll plan on it, and I hope you'll follow the Lord in believer's baptism. But baptism is not Christianity's only logo. There's another. We call it communion. And the first thing I want to note about participating in communion or in the Lord's Supper is that its origins are Hebrew. Remember, the first communion service between Jesus and his disciples was actually a snippet of a Jewish Passover. For centuries, Passover represented Israel's exodus from Egypt. But at his last meal with his disciples, Jesus reinterpreted their 1,500-year-old tradition. At a Passover Seder, the father he takes out three sheets of matzah or unleavened bread and he pulls out the middle sheet. Then he breaks it and then he wraps it in a linen napkin and then he hides it from the rest of the family. Later in the meal, the youngest child, he finds the hidden matzah and he gets rewarded with a piece of candy. That annual ritual preached the gospel of Jesus. For Jesus is the middle person of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He was taken out of heaven and broken on the cross. He was wrapped in linen grave clothes and buried or hidden beneath the earth. The youngest disciple, John, was first to the tomb to find him alive. And now when we receive the bread of life, we're rewarded with the sweetness Salvation, and it was over this piece of matzah that Jesus said to his disciples, Take, eat, this is my body. He gave it brand new meaning. I'm sure those wide eyed disciples couldn't believe their ears. But in addition to the bread, Jesus held up a cup and he said to them, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. This was actually the third cup of the Passover Seder. It was called the cup of redemption. For centuries, this cup represented the blood of the Passover lamb. On that final night in Egypt, believers had taken an innocent lamb and spread its blood on the thresholds and doorposts of their homes. And when the death plague saw the blood, it passed over the house. And again, Jesus shakes up the tradition. From now on, his disciples are to view the cup as a reminder of his blood. Apply his blood by faith to the post of your heart, and death passes over you. You're saved. We're saved by his blood. And yet the question arises, what did Jesus actually mean When he took the bread and the cup and uttered the phrases, this is my body and this is my blood. Over the history of the church, three different schools of thought have risen. Today, Roman Catholics teach a doctrine called transubstantiation. Big word. They believe that when the priest blesses the wafer and the wine, that it literally changes substance, transubstantiation. That what you're actually eating becomes the physical body and blood of Jesus. Most Protestants, like myself, reject transubstantiation, and for a number of good reasons. First, if that's what Jesus meant, in context, His words would have made no sense. For His body was there, present in the room. It would have been confusing for him to say the bread he was holding was the body holding it. If transubstantiation is the correct view, Jesus would have certainly taught it in a less confounding and confusing way. I believe his words were obviously meant to be taken figuratively. Second, Jewish law, specifically Leviticus 17 verse 3, prohibited the drinking of human blood. Jesus certainly wasn't telling his disciples to violate the Old Testament law. And then third, in John 6, verse 56, Jesus had already established that eating his flesh and drinking his blood were ways of talking about believing in him. That eating and drinking were figurative language for receiving the Spirit of Jesus into your life by faith. Now there are other groups like Lutherans who believe in what is called consubstantiation. They stop short of teaching that the wafer and the wine actually become the literal body and blood of Jesus. Rather, they say that the body and blood are with the wafer and with the wine. In Latin, con means with. Thus, Jesus' actual body and blood surround the bread and wine and are literally received with them when it is eaten and drank. The problem, though, with both transubstantiation and consubstantiation is that each time communion is served, the body of Jesus is literally sacrificed all over again. And this opposes Paul's teaching in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. For there he tells us emphatically that Jesus needs to be sacrificed only once and for all time. If he needed to be sacrificed every time, every week at the communion table, it would diminish the value of what he had accomplished on the cross 2,000 years ago. There is a third school of thought concerning the Lord's Supper. Other denominations, a lot of Baptist groups believe in what's called simple representation. They believe that the elements are merely a memorial to Jesus' body and blood that nothing special or spiritual goes on at the communion table, that it is strictly symbolic. I personally no more believe that than I do the other two. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, the verse that we read earlier, Paul calls out an evil practice occurring in the church at Corinth. You see, to placate pagan friends, the Corinthians were participating in sacrifices to idols. Paul warns the believers in Corinth, though they're correct that that idol is just a stick or just a stone, there are demons behind the idol. That idolatry is satanically inspired. And thus the act of sacrificing to an idol brings the worshiper in touch with the demons behind it. And to illustrate the spiritual dynamic he's warning them about, Paul uses a holy experience. He says of the church's observance of the Lord's Supper, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? The word communion implies a personal, close, intimate contact, a special and unusual fellowship. In eating at the altar of an idol, the Corinthians were inviting contact with devils. But in the same way, at the communion table, we are fellowshipping with God's Spirit. We are fellowshipping with the Spirit behind the table. In communion, we are spiritually interacting with Christ. Nothing happens to the molecular structure of the bread and wine. It's still just bread and wine. But spiritually, a window of opportunity opens up for us to have an unusual intimacy with Jesus at his table. Communion is a special opportunity to come to the altar of the Lord and interact with the Spirit behind the altar, the Holy Spirit. Through faith, we can touch God's presence, we can make contact with Jesus' healing power. Here's how I like to put it communion isn't magical. And it's not a memorial, but it's mystical. Something spiritual happens in communion. We commune with Jesus. How about that? Which leads me to my next point. Communion is the glue that adheres believers together. Paul goes on to tell the Corinthians, For we, being many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of that one bread. You know, in the ancient world, you were extremely careful with whom you ate. People ate from common loaves and dipped in common bowls and drank from common cups. When you ate with someone, you shared germs. And this is why people ate from the same loaf for bread. They assumed that they were becoming one. A bond was being created. And this is what happens in communion. When believers eat from the same table, we become one. Communion is not only an opportunity for us to experience the Holy Spirit, but to cement our bond as brothers and sisters in Jesus. It's the spiritual glue. Communion is the glue between me and you. And lastly, communion is an avenue for blessing and healing. Both are available at the Lord's table. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 29 and 30, Paul is speaking of communion when he points out that since the believers in Corinth were not discerning the Lord's body, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep, which was a euphemism for death. Because they weren't rightly discerning of communion, they were physically sick as a consequence. You know, we're told in Isaiah 53 that it's by Jesus' stripes that we're healed. Jesus paid for our healing on the cross. And thus, what better opportunity to receive healing than at the Lord's table? There, our focus on His broken body should stimulate our faith to trust in His healing power. If we believe in Him, then we'll receive from Him. On communion, I have one more thought. It's tragic to me how one misinterpreted word has muddied the waters of understanding for millions of believers and stolen their enjoyment of the Lord's Supper. In the Old King James Version, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27 reads, Whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. I grew up with that verse in my mind, and boy, did it send shivers down my spine. The problem, though, is I had a false interpretation of chapter 11, verse 27. Our church interpreted this verse to mean that if you were unworthy of Christ when you took communion, then God might just strike you dead. In fact, that's why some of you were sick, because you've been taken unworthily. We would spend time, before we took the bread and the cup, examining our hearts and confessing our sins and hoping this communion service wasn't going to be our last, that it wasn't a death sentence. My notion of communion was like a game of Russian roulette. When I left, did I leave something out of my confession? Was I not sincere enough? Was I not pure enough? I had all these questions rolling through my head. I approached the cup of communion like a cup of arsenic. It's no surprise that I dreaded communion. And yet, tragically, all of my confusion was caused by a grammatical mistake. When your teacher said to pay attention to the grammar, she meant it. It was a good reason. Grammatical mistakes can be costly. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27, the word unworthily is an adverb describing the manner in which the cup and bread are to be taken, not an adjective describing the character of its recipient. In the New King James, this matter gets straightened out. The passage reads, Whoever eats in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. The problem Paul was addressing had nothing to do with anyone being worthy of communion. Some of the believers in Corinth were coming to the Lord's table. They were jockeying for position. They were acting selfishly. They were pigging out and eating in excess. No one could ever be worthy. But these people could straighten up and participate in a respectful manner. That's what he was talking about. I think we need to remind ourselves that if we could be worthy enough for God, Jesus would have never had to die in our place. It's not up to us to be worthy. It never has been. No one can ever be worthy enough for a holy God. Our duty is to participate in a worthy manner, to take the communion humbly and sincerely and gratefully and even joyfully always rejoicing in what Jesus has done for us. You know, in some churches, communion is called the Eucharist, which is actually the Greek word for thankful. You take the bread and the cup in a worthy manner when you receive them with a thankful heart. Let me close with the story of a Scottish pastor. Once he was administering communion, when he noticed a young lady with tears in her eyes, those tears were streaming down her cheeks. When she was served the communion, she turned her head. She refused to take it. She was paralyzed by the guilt from her past sins. The pastor walked over to her and spoke to her gently and reoffered her the communion as he whispered, Take it, Lassie. It's for sinners. Take it, Lassie. It's for sinners, and it's still for sinners. This is true of both communion and baptism. The logos of Christianity are not symbols of our own worthiness, but tributes to the glory and grace of our Lord Jesus. That's why we need to make sure that they're always carefully protected and enthusiastically practiced in Jesus' name.